Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for FBC Keller Media in the iTunes Store. And now, here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. My Bible is open to Luke chapter 2. I hope you'll join me there as we're studying verse by verse. We come today to verse 21. Two weeks ago on New Year's Day, we had a very special service here, a service of testimonies. And I've heard from so many of you that uh, were blessed and moved by hearing uh, some of your fellow church members and how the Lord is working in their lives. Unfortunately, I was not able to be here for that because I was ill, but uh, I look forward to the next time we do that and we will do that again. It's important to hear testimonies. And this morning, you're going to hear two testimonies from the scripture, one by a man and one by a woman. And so uh, let's read today under the title, Witnesses to the Incarnation. Scripture says this, Luke 2, 21, and when eight days had passed before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days for their purification according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law. Then he took him into his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace, according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentile and the glory of your people Israel. And his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel, and for a sign to be opposed, and a sword will pierce even your own soul, to the end that thoughts from your many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. And she was advanced in years and had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and then as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple, serving day and night with fastings and prayers. And at that very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of Him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own city of Nazareth. And the Lord added His blessing to the reading and hearing of His Word. Now, as we have noted before, and I'll continue to throughout this study, the Gospel of Luke was meant to be an accurate historical description of the life of the Lord Jesus. Written by a doctor named Luke, he had gathered his information from firsthand accounts, from those who had walked and talked with Christ during his earthly ministry. Of course, Luke was inspired by the Holy Spirit, and we can depend on the accuracy and the trustworthiness of this gospel as we can every book of the Bible. But in his gospel, Luke makes some very bold claims about Jesus. First and foremost, he is presenting Jesus as the promised Messiah, this one that the Old Testament foretold would come. 
He presents Jesus as the Son of God. He declares that his very conception was miraculous and supernatural in nature. In short, he declares Jesus to be God in the flesh. Now that last point is not to be overlooked. It's what theologians call the doctrine of the incarnation. The, the root of that carne means flesh. And so we can say it means the enfleshment, God taking on human flesh. Now such a bold claim that Jesus is God in the flesh would require substantiation in the form of witnesses. And so far, Luke has brought forth Zacharias, a priest, and Elizabeth, his wife. He's brought forth Mary and Joseph, and even the shepherds were brought to bear, testifying to the miraculous nature of Jesus' birth. Now, in our passage this morning that I just read, two more godly witnesses, one a man, one a woman, a man named Simeon and a woman named Anna. Now, the first thing we see is that Mary and Joseph obeyed the law. Now, I think we can rightly say that God's people ought to be law keepers. The scripture says that God has instituted government for our protection and for our good. And I believe that Christians should be the best citizens in the country. We ought to pay our taxes and, and we ought to drive the speed limit and, and we ought to support uh, those whose job it is to pass the laws and to enforce the laws. The Bible tells us to pray for kings and governors and all those with authority over us. Peter says in one of his epistles that uh, we are to submit to the governing authorities. Mary and Joseph followed this. They obeyed the law. In fact, they had come to Bethlehem specifically to obey a decree from Caesar Augustus to report for a census in your hometown. And so they, they had done that. But not only did they keep man's law, as Jesus said to his disciples, to uh, give that to Caesar, which, which is Caesar's, and to God the things which are God's, they also obeyed the old covenant law. They were Jewish people after all. And just as they had obeyed Caesar's orders to report for the census, now they obey God's law by having Jesus circumcised on the eighth day after his birth. Now you recall that God had given to Abraham, the father of the Hebrew nation, circumcision as a sign of his covenant. You can read about that in Genesis chapter 17, among other places. But there are also several passages in the Old Testament that indicate that circumcision was more than a sign of God's covenant. It was to be a very personal reminder to every man and indeed to every family of their own personal need of forgiveness. In fact, the Bible indicates that the real circumcision God is interested in is the circumcision of the heart, and that is forgiveness of sins. But we know, of course, that Jesus was sinless. He would not need a reminder of his need of forgiveness. He had no need of forgiveness. Why was Jesus circumcised? Well, it's the same really sort of question people ask of why was Jesus baptized? You remember when John the Baptist, the cousin of Jesus, was out in the wilderness baptizing people for repentance of sins. Jesus came to him and requested that John baptize him. Remember John's response was the same one we have when we read this story. He tried to prevent him. And he said that I have need that you baptize me. But Jesus said, permit it at this time, why? To fulfill all righteousness. Jesus never confessed any sin, he had no sin to confess. But he's saying, I always and ever do the will of the Father. And God had made it clear in his will that it was his will for people to be baptized. And so Jesus, to identify with humanity, submits himself to circumcision as a baby and to baptism as an adult. 
Not only was the law of circumcision kept, there were also some laws of purification that needed to be dealt with. Leviticus chapter 12 tells us that when a Jewish woman gave birth to a son, she was ceremonially unclean for a period of time, and then she would come to the temple. And this apparently is what Mary was doing. But then notice also in verse 24, there was also a sacrifice that was to be made for the birth of this son. And it says in verse 24, they came to offer a sacrifice according to that which is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. The book of Leviticus prescribes that when a child was born that the family was to offer a sacrifice. And if they were a family of means, they were to, to sacrifice a sheep or a larger animal. But in the case of a family that was impoverished, God, of course, uh, cares for the poor. And he says they are only required to give sacrifice of these inexpensive birds. And so it says here, that's what Mary and Joseph did. After all, they're a young couple, probably in their teenage years, just starting out and uh, don't have a lot. And it says a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons is what they offered. That tells us that Jesus was born into a poor family, right? It's kind of keeping with the theme that we've seen so far in the book of Luke. Jesus was not born into an antiseptic hospital. He was born where the animals are kept, laid not into a, a brand new bassinet with fluffy sheets. He was wrapped in cloths and laid in an animal feed trough. He did not come to fanfare on live satellite television coast to coast. His announcement was made to humble shepherds. And so here we have Jesus, the Savior of all kinds of people, including the poor, including the uneducated. And so here we see from the very beginning, Jesus identifying not only with humanity, but specifically with the poor. The second thing we see is not only was there a keeping of the law, but there was also a keeping of a promise to a particular man, this man Simeon. We're introduced to him in verse 25. Here's the first testimony that Luke brings forward. And there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. That's one sentence that tells us a lot about this man. It tells us his name. It tells us that he was Jewish. This man Simeon was named after one of the sons of Jacob. One of the tribes of Israel was the tribe of, of Simeon. He's described in two words, righteous and devout. You might want to underline those two words in your Bible. Righteous and devout. Those are two words that should describe every child of God. Now we know that in the ultimate sense of righteousness, no one is. The Bible says there's none righteous, no not one. That is none perfect, none who doesn't need a savior. This is speaking, however, of another kind of righteousness the Bible alludes to often. That is practical righteousness. That is in practice, he had right relationships with other people. And we can Infer from that that he paid his taxes, he paid his bills, he was kind to his neighbors, he was generous, he was the kind of person you would want to be your neighbor. And that was because of the second word, he was devout, he was right with God. To be righteous is to be right with people, to be devout is to be right with God. That is, he was sincere and dedicated in his service to God. As you might guess, I preach a lot of funerals. People sometimes ask me if I find that difficult to do. And I can honestly say, usually no, it's not. I have buried a lot of good friends here at First Baptist Keller in these 16 years. But when I know that that friend was righteous and devout, I rejoice for them when they go home, even as I weep for their passing from us. In fact, I sometimes use this very passage, Luke 2, 
25 through 28 at their funeral services. Especially if I've known they've lived a long life and have waited patiently for their glorification. Because God had given this man Simeon a great promise. Listen to it, verse, uh, the next verse. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Now, now let that sink in. You talk about being bulletproof. God had promised this man, you will not die until you see the Messiah with your own eyes. Now, generation after generation had wanted to see this Messiah. Many were born and thought it'll be in my lifetime, and they died having not seen him. But this man had been given a promise from God, you will not die until you see the Messiah. And then one day, he was led by the Holy Spirit to go up into the temple. And what does he see but this little couple, Mary and Joseph, holding the baby Jesus in their arms. We're not told how. We're just told that in some supernatural way, God revealed to Simeon that his day had finally come. This was the Messiah. Now, I suspect if, if we had a promise like that and, and we saw the Messiah, we might be conflicted. On one hand, there's the Messiah. On the other hand, uh-oh, <laughs> my time has come. But not Simeon. We don't see any sense of fear or anxiety or regret. In fact, his reaction was, was to praise God. The scripture says he, he took him into his arms, that is the baby Jesus, and he blessed God. And here's what he said. Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Is it your ambition that when it's your time to go that you depart in peace? That's the way every Christian ought to die, in peace. It may surprise you to know there's a big football game today. There was a big one yesterday for people who are New England Patriots fans. They won, of course, as they seem to always do. But, but before the game, I, I was uh, watching an interview about their biggest fan. It's a little boy who's 10 years old who had been diagnosed with terminal illness. And a few weeks ago, his father was trying to fulfill as many of his wishes as he could before he passed. And he, he wanted to meet Tom Brady, the quarterback of the New England Patriots. So his dad took him up and uh, Mr. Brady graciously welcomed him to the locker room, signed a game ball for him and a jersey. And he had a wonderful day. But at the end of that interview, that they actually spoke to the little boy. They'd been interviewing his parents. And you know how these uh, interviewers do. They, they try to draw out emotion and they play the soft music in the background to tell us how we're supposed to feel. And um, he interviews this little boy and he asked him, because his mother had told him, he asked her point blank, am I going to die? And she says, yes, you're going to die. And so he interviews a little boy, 10 years old, and the interviewer says, when you think about your future, what do you fear? And th this little boy looks at this man like that was the craziest question he'd ever heard. And he said, well, I'm going to heaven, <laughs> right? No fear, no anxiety. He, he, he believed as a child only can believe. That's why Jesus said, unless your faith is like a little child, you'll not uh, see the kingdom of heaven. He said, I'm going to heaven, and I know I'm going to be happy. That's what he said. That's how all of us ought to live. That's how Simeon lived. He could depart in peace because he knew the promises of God had proven themselves to be true and trustworthy. I think we, we can understand from his words that Simeon was not too heavily invested in this life that he could not afford to part with it. 
I've told you before, one of my favorite singers is Rich Mullins, and my favorite song of his is a song called Elijah. And he almost prophetically speaks of his own early death in the song. And he says, when I die, I want to go out like Elijah in a chariot of fire. And this is the last line of that song, it won't break my heart to say goodbye. We ought to be so in love with Jesus. We ought ought to be so ready to meet him that whenever he calls us, we can go in peace. Every believer ought to have that of an ambition of our heart. When it comes our time to die, and it surely will, to depart in peace. How can we depart in peace? Well, the same way Simeon could depart in peace, by receiving the Messiah with joy. For every person in this room who has received the Messiah with joy, that is you've recognized you're a sinner in need of a Savior, and He's come to fulfill that need, and He is the fulfillment of God's promises to you to do that. You've received Him as Lord and Savior. You can and will depart in peace. The question is, have you experienced the salvation of the Lord? See, all Simeon knew was the incarnation For those of us who live today, we look forward to the second coming of Christ, right? When He comes to rule and reign, this time not as a suffering servant, but as the King of kings and Lord of lords. And then Luke calls his second witness to the stand, this time a woman, a dear lady, to testify to the veracity of the incarnation. And we see in her testimony a prayer answered. Look at verse 36, chapter 2. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years and had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage. And then as a widow to the age of 84, she never left the temple, serving night and day with fastings and prayers. At that very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. Now remember Luke was writing this originally as a letter to one man, a friend of his by the name of Theopolis. And he's giving these incredible details about these individuals, I think to show that, look, you are welcome to go look this up. There were people alive, plenty of them, that that knew these people. These were not characters from Luke's imagination. These were actual people. He tells of their genealogy, who their parents were, where they lived. And he was welcome to go ask people. And by the way, I would say of the Bible today, even though 2,000 years have passed, you are welcome to ask your questions of the Bible anytime here. We don't fear them here. The Bible has stood the test of time. It has been poked and prodded and critiqued and ridiculed, and yet here it is, still today. And it is still as truthful today as it's ever been. And here's this woman described here as a prophetess, one who proclaimed the Word of God. Her dad was well known, seemingly. His name is given, Phanuel. Her tribe was the tribe of Asher. The Scripture says she was advanced in years. Luke's a smart man. (laughs) He uses a euphemism there. This is a woman that was was very old. In fact, the Greek construction here, my my translation, I use the New American Standard, says she was married for seven years, her husband died, and then she lived to the age of 84 as a widow. The Greek construction could just as accurately say, and it might, and I think it does, that she lived 84 years after her husband died. 
And that would probably make her over 100 years old. And so here's a woman who had lived a very long life, and she was a woman of prayer. She was a woman uh, of fasting. It says she never left the temple. And that sounds strange to, to you know that there were apartments there attached to the temple that some of these widow ladies in it went in, and she didn't waste her time. She didn't spend her time watching Wheel of Fortune and, and uh, playing cards and gossiping. There's nothing wrong with, with those things as long as they're done um, with, with understanding there are more important things. And the more th- important things that she was about was prayer and fasting. She, she was very sincere in her devotion to the Lord as we have so many godly women in our church today. I can remember just a few years ago in the eight o'clock service, I'd look over to my right and we had three dear ladies, the three oldest ladies in our church. At that time, they were 97, 98, and 99. And only one of them lived to be 100. And I've had the privilege of preaching the funeral of all three of those since then. And we have other godly folks in our church. In fact, I want to say this. I believe that some of the most important work that takes place in our church from week to week is done by ladies in our church who no longer can even leave their home. Some of them can no longer even live their bed. We have a ministry here. Some of our dear ladies go out every Monday and visit our shut-ins, deliver to them copies of the sermon and take them literature and their Sunday school lessons and the Lifeline magazine. And many of those dear folks I know pray for this church every day. Every day. They pray for me. They pray for our staff. They pray for the lost. And I believe the Lord hears their prayers. The, the scripture is crystal clear that God has a very special place in his heart for the widow. In fact, one of my favorite verses in the New Testament, James chapter 1, verse 27. True and undefiled religion before God the Father is this. To visit the orphans and the widows and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Even before the command to keep oneself unstained by the world is to visit the orphans and the widows. So you think the Lord cares about the widow women? He does. He cares about children. He cares about those who society says are no longer important. And so God gives a very special place of honor by mentioning in Scripture this widow woman, Anna. I laugh my, I, myself silly when I hear people criticizing Christianity and Christ and saying, Christianity subjugates women. Christianity puts women down. We've got to throw off religion. Listen, no one ever did more for women than Jesus Christ. For one, he died for their sins. And two, in the scriptures, he gives them a place of honor and reverence. And here he is doing it again through the pen of Dr. Luke. He's holding up Anna as an example for all of us. Look at verse 38. Scripture says, at that very moment she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. The Bible says she spent her time in prayer and fasting. What is implied is that she was praying specifically for something. And I believe what she was praying for is the coming of the Messiah. Do you ever pray that way? Scripture says, and our tradition tells us that for many, many years, the early church used to pray, Lord Jesus, come, right? We want the Lord to come. 
I pray it comes in 2017, don't you? May this be the year that the Lord comes. That's not up to us. We know this one day is coming, right? When that calendar flipped over from 2016 to 2017, someone asked me, as they always do every new year, do you think this will be the year? And I said what I always say, I don't know, but I know we're one year closer than we were this time last year. And so the Lord is coming, and Anna prayed for it night and day, and now He's come. The Messiah came, and again, in some supernatural way, the, the Lord Jesus is revealed to her as the Messiah, and she thanks God. That's the appropriate response to answered prayer. The other appropriate response is you tell others about it. Look at it. She continued to speak to all those who were looking for the redemption of, redemption of Jerusalem. We're not told how much longer she lived, but day and night people would come to the temple. She would say, He's here. He's come. Let me ask you a few questions in light of these testimonies of Simeon and Anna. Are you eagerly anticipating the second coming of Jesus as Anna was His incarnation? Does that excite you? I'm 45 years old, and I know things have changed a lot since I was a boy, but I remember growing up in Baptist churches where we used to sing about Jesus coming. Jesus is coming soon, morning or night or noon. Sinners will meet their doom. Trumpets will sound. Jesus is coming. We ought to be happy about that. As we look at the cultural landscape, as we look at the political division in, in our country, yes, we ought to pray for peace in our own country. But we also know the truth is we're just strangers and pilgrims passing through. We don't really belong here. And one day the Lord's coming for His church. Do you long for it? Do you pray for it? Do you tell others about it? I, I think the second coming of Jesus is kind of like a, a lot of other of the doctrines of our church, the virgin birth and things like that. We're just a little bit embarrassed about it. It seems so far-fetched. It seems like myth. But it's what we believe. It's what we hold to. And so we should declare it. And so let me say this. If you had to say no to any or all of those questions, you're not longing for the second coming. You're not praying for it. You're not telling others about it. If not, it may indicate one of two things. Number one, it may indicate that the things of this world have so crowded out your affection for Jesus, that you're no longer sensitive to the things of God. That's a tragedy. Maybe you are a Christian, and maybe you have received Him as, as Lord and Savior, but, but you've begun to invest so heavily in the here and now that the life to come no longer excites you. If that's the case with you today, would you confess that as sin? And say, Lord, with your help this year, I want to come back to you. I want to rekindle that first love that has been lost. The second option may be this. It may be that you've never known Him at all. It may be that you're lost and still in your sins. Maybe you've given lip service at some point to, to following Jesus, but there's never been any fruit in your life. Scripture says, by your fruit, by their fruit you will know them, right? Love and joy and, and peace if they're the absence from those things in your life and there's no evidence that the Lord has done a good work in you, it, it may indicate you need to be born again. It may mean that you need to divest yourself of any 
thought that there's something good in you that God needs. It, it may mean that, that you need to realize that to come to him, you have to come on his terms as a spiritual pauper with empty hands and outturned pockets and say with the publican, Lord, have mercy upon me, the sinner. But here's the good news. If you'll do that, if you'll come to him with a contrite heart on his terms, he will hear you and he'll receive you. And you'll be just as saved as, as Simeon or Anna or Mary or Joseph or, or Brother Keith. All those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. If you've called upon the name of the Lord, start living like it. Prioritize your life with an anticipation of the second coming of Christ. If you've never called upon his name, do it today. Be saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we have throughout the New Testament testimonies of your saving work. Some are dramatic, like uh, Paul's Damascus Road experience. And others, Lord, are testified to by a godly life over many years, like Simeon and, and Anna. And Father, I want to pause and say thank you for some godly people in this church and in my life who have, have been that to me a godly example of trusting the Lord over a long period of time. Father, none of us know if this will be the year that you come or perhaps you'd call some of us home. It's likely that you will. Lord, we want to be ready for that. We, we want to depart here in peace. So Father, I pray if there's even one here today who does not know that supernatural peace that only comes from a right relationship with you, Lord, I pray that today would be the day that you'd save souls. Call them to yourself by your spirit. Lord, I pray for a Christian here today who has invested too heavily in this life, who would find it very difficult to say goodbye. Lord, I pray you do whatever is necessary to, to, to pry the love of this life out of our hands so that we can be totally devoted to you. Help us, Lord to be a Simeon and Anna. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.